Welcome to White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life and the true power of what is unseen. Let's discuss dreams, intuition, manifesting, as above, so below, angels, afterlife, the science of consciousness, and other infinite possibilities within and all around you. I hope every episode informs, inspires, and illuminates. So, now the scene is set, allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk barefoot together on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores to see what mystery lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely on White Shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Now, you know how I get excited about all my guests. Well, this time, triple that energy, because I have a guest that when I read his biography, everything about it just got me so excited. It's where I'm at with my thinking and so much. And you know, I talk a lot about video gaming on this, <laughs> much, to, although you all complain. So I'm so excited to have this guest here today. His name is Rizvan Verk, and he's a successful entrepreneur, video game pioneer, film producer, venture capitalist, computer scientist. He was the founder of Play Labs at MIT and is currently doing a PhD and teaching classes at both the College of Global Futures and the Fulton Schools of Engineering at Arizona State University. He's also the best-selling author of numerous books, and I'm sure in the course of this interview, we're going to talk about them and his latest title. Um, He's also a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading video game VC funds in the world, and has invested in many successful startups. I could go on and on and on. Your biography, my goodness. You've also created video games played by millions, including Tapfish and games based on Game of Thrones, Star Trek, The Walking Dead, Grimm and Penny Dreadful. Wow. When you listen to that, Riz, do you sometimes go, yes, that is me? <laughs> well, I agree. There's a lot of different uh, you know, components there in my biography. <laughs> and it's usually just because I end up following whatever I'm interested in. Uh, and that usually takes me on a new thread that gets added into this tapestry of our lives. <laughs> well, you're obviously a visionary. And um, when your publicist got in touch, I, you know, because she knew that I, I co-authored a book with Dr. Julia Mossbridge, who's the Time Lady Precognition, she said that you were aware of that and that, we, you know, that, that that would resonate. So she said, you've got to speak to Riz. You will, you will absolutely love him. And she's so right because I've been reading up all about you and, and, and looking at your amazing latest title and everything. So thank you for being here, first of all. But, of course, you are here to talk about your latest title. Would you mind for people who are new to you, just first of all, saying who you are, what you do. I know I've done a biography, but it's much better from the person themselves. And then we'll talk a bit about your book. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, my background is as a computer scientist um, and I uh, studied at MIT many years ago and became an entrepreneur uh, in the software industry. And then for for many years, uh, I was living kind of a double life in that during the day, I would be running a company, working with employees, with clients, working with venture capitalists, 
And then in the evenings and weekends, I'd be going off to explore different aspects of consciousness, including things like shamanic dreaming. Uh, I'd fly out to the Monroe Institute to try out out out-of-body experiences, uh, lucid dream experiences, meditation. And so, you know, throughout my career, I've kind of had this double life. And then, you know, a few years ago, I ended up writing a a book uh, called The Simulation Hypothesis, which kind of brought these different threads of my career and life together, uh, which basically made the point that reality is like a video game. And I was able to draw parallels between uh, everything I knew about video games, everything I knew about science, just because I spent a lot of time with, with folks in academia, as well as different mystical traditions and different religions, as well as a lot of science fiction like The Matrix. And so I was able to bring it all together. Uh, and it was partly because I wrote that book uh, which happened after I had a, um, uh, some health issues. Uh, and so I'll talk, I can talk a little bit about those in a minute. But uh, during that time, I reread uh, Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi, which was you know, one of the top spiritual books of the, uh, of the past, uh, tw- of the 20th century. And I, 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 because I couldn't do much else, I reread the book and then I was looking for other books and wrote a few blog posts about it. And I was never intending to write a book about Yogananda or about his teachings per se, but because I had written this previous book about linking modern technology to ancient Indian mystics, uh, I ended up getting an invitation from HarperCollins India that says, you know, it's the 75th anniversary of, of Yogananda's book. And, you know, that book has been touted by people like Steve Jobs and George Harrison and many others who used to give away copies of it. Uh, and they said, well, we'd like to write uh, an updated interpretation of some of the lessons uh, from that book and from you know ancient yogic uh, text in general, and we'd like you to write it. And it was a bit of a surprise to me <laughs> at first uh, because you know I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a businessman, I, I do pull these ideas together, and now I'm an academic as well. Uh, and they said, no, well, we, we'd like you to use some of your modern technology examples to to explain these things. And that's kind of what led to me writing this specific book, Wisdom of a Yogi. I'm so glad you did. It's an astonishing read, highly recommended, everyone. I, I really can't recommend the book enough. Um, but I, I love what you're saying. Also, we share the same publisher, HarperCollins. Hello. <laughs> it's nice to meet another <laughs> Harper Collins also, um, they're very into actually dream world and, and the spiritual more than people realize. Um, but first of all, let's just, just want to dig deeper when you went back that you had a kind of a double life. And what, what I what I sort of sensed intuitively when you were saying that is it, it, you kind of like enhanced what we all have. We all have that double life, don't we, that during the day we're one way and then at night, you know, when we dream, we are something so different you know, infinite possibilities, but you just took it to that extreme, didn't you? Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess I did. We, I, I think we, we do have these different aspects of ourselves, you know. And uh, you know, recently I was at uh, Rice University. Uh, the gentleman named Jeff Kripal, who who writes about, you know, uses the terminology of superheroes, and he talks about, you know, Clark Kent versus Superman, and how during the day we all have to be Clark Kent. We all have to kind of fit into. <laughs> Uh, the, the the mainstream business world where, where we spend our time, but then there are other aspects of us, uh, and that was definitely you know true of myself. And then after a while, I got tired of having these different aspects, so I just tried to to integrate them as much as possible. In fact, my my first book, Zen Entrepreneurship, was very much about 
you know, my experiences, early experiences when I was doing my first startup and learning to meditate as well. And, you know, I, I, I pursued some of these yogic techniques because I thought they would help me out. You know, I thought meditation would help me have better concentration and that would lead me to be a better computer programmer, which would lead me to be a better entrepreneur. Uh, but then, and, and it would help me to deal with all the kind of ups and downs and all the crazy things that happen. Uh, particularly when you're running your own company, there, there's just, you know, lots of ups and downs. Uh, and, and that was true. But what I, what I realized eventually was that all the ups and downs in my career and in my life were being created for me uh, in a kind of karmic way, in the same way that in our dreams, we create situations based upon our lives and our thoughts and our karmas. And that's really, you know, where I thought I, I realized I had it backwards. It's almost like these challenges, uh, which I like to call quests, you know, just like in a video game, if, if you play a video game, you have quests and achievements and you, you kind of pick and choose and say, okay, I'll go on this quest now. That perhaps the challenges in our lives are very much like that. They're being tailored and created for us, uh, you know, in the same way that they might be in a video game or in a dream, but in what we think of as our real lives. I couldn't agree more. First of all, I'm going to say thank you for mentioning the Marvel Universe. I'm actually currently going through it in chronological order for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, each time you learn something. But anyway, that, that aside, but also uh, your, your, obviously your passion for video games and dreaming. And I wrote a book uh, a few years back about lucid dreaming and how to do it, kind of trigger it naturally. And my, I remember having a conversation with my publishers because the first step I said is play video games because there is a strong link, isn't there, between video gamers and vivid lucid dreamers. There is, uh, there are studies showing that you know the two are, are very, very connected. But in mind, body, and spirit, certainly in the world I write, you know, video games are like evil. And it was just trying to, you know, because I went in with the first step, which wasn't like go and meditate, go and walk <laughs> with nature, it was go and get the console, you know. So, uh, but they 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 came around to my way of thinking at the end. But it is because you're immersing yourself, aren't you, in an alternative reality? You're practicing the dream state in, in, in a dream, aren't you? That's right. And so in a sense, it's an interesting connection that you point out uh, because people who spend time within video games are used to becoming an avatar of themselves, right? And in fact, the yes. term avatar comes from Sanskrit and it means to descend. Originally, it meant to descend from you know divinity into, into human form. But when the folks at LucasArts uh, which was, you know, uh, George Lucas's company when he created, uh, after he created Star Wars, they were looking for a term to call the character in the video game. They ended up using the term avatar just because it was about descending from what we think of as the physical world into this virtual world. And I think, you know, y Yogananda used to use a, a reference of modern technology back in the 20th century. He used to use the metaphor of the, the movie projector, right? I mean, he, he, he saw, uh, the scenes of destruction in World War One, like like the newsreels, and he was wondering how God could allow so much suffering in the world while he was meditating, and he got this answer, saying that you know what what is life and death but relativities in the cosmic dream that you have a dreamless self, uh, and you know you no more die than an actor who plays a character dies in the movie. And so, you know, he liked to use modern technology at the time. <clears throat> and I believe today that, you know, if, if people we were to look back at the way reality has been described in, by the sages of the past, there's the Leela in the Vedas, which meant like a divine play. 
there's you know the 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 dream was used a lot particularly in the buddhist traditions where they talk about you know a way to describe maya or illusion what maya actually means is not just illusion but it's like a carefully crafted illusion like when we go to see a magic show we kind of put aside our disbelief because we want to be amazed we know their tricks uh and and in a sense, the sages were telling us reality is like that. Like when we go see a movie or like a Marvel movie, you get yourself immersed in that world. Uh, and, I, and I believe that if these sages were alive today, they would, Yogananda in particular, would say, well, it's like a movie, but it's an interactive movie and you've got a script and you can change the script and you're you're playing it, but you're also in there with other people and you're also watching it. And what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like, an interactive, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, like a, a World of Warcraft or a Fortnite, and so that ends up being, I think, a really you know solid analogy. But but that's great that, that you were pointing out the actual link uh, between those two because you you are used to you know basically immersing yourself in these worlds and identifying, and that's what we do here. Right? The Greeks talked about when we incarnate, we go across the river of forgetfulness. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's part of that identification that happens. Uh, so, so I, I do think there is, there is something to that, which means actually that the younger generation might be better at lucid dreaming than, you know, uh, than the older generations because they play so much, so many video games <laughs> these days. There's a lot, I mean, everything in moderation, of course, in, in there are addictive tendencies to everything, but, you know, there's, it actually keeps your mind nimble. It, it helps boost your creativity and your intuition. And, and it, you know, you're, there is a link, isn't it, between vivid dreaming and 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 gaming. And um, am I correct, actually, didn't Xbox recently, like, have Powered by Dreams and that a lot of uh, video games are actually visions in a dream, aren't they? Uh, that they first started there, like great works of art, like Salvador Dali, literature, like Frankenstein, all visions in a dream. Google was a vision in a dream, wasn't it? Larry Page. Yeah, there's a lot of different, <clears throat> that's right, there's a lot of different inspirations that people have had from dreams for people who, yeah. you know, different types of art and for video games and startups in general, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure the, the Google reference, but I do know of, of many references where an idea came through. In one of my startups, too, you know, I had this vision of being, it was after the dot-com crash, and uh, I had this vision of being in a business conference with a guy I hadn't seen in a while, and I asked him what he was doing, and he showed me a diagram of, like, uh, pro- something that looked like a spider, and, you know, I ended, we ended up creating a product based off of that diagram uh, in, in my startup. So it is something that, that, that happens a lot, I think, because we get clues, and, and I, I like to call these <clears throat> intuitions that we get whether it's an inspiration for, you know, a book, uh, <clears throat> a movie, uh, you know, there's there's a famous story uh, that your listeners may know, but it was about a young bee, bee uh, filmmaker uh, in Italy who had to go home from the set because he wasn't feeling well, and he woke up with this feverish dream of robots emerging from the fire. Uh, and he presented it to his friend Gail, and she said, okay, right you know, draw a picture. He drew a picture and she said, write a script. And he wrote a script. And then eventually, you know, he made the movie and the movie was the Terminator. Yes. Was it that scene when half the body's cut off and he's crawling through? I I think that was the the, the vision in the dream, wasn't it? I do remember reading that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty strong vision, right? One that he couldn't get out of his head. And and sometimes that happens to us. One of my mentors is a gentleman named Robert Moss, 
uh, who does shamanic dream work in, in, in the indigenous you know, Native American traditions. He talks about sometimes the great story in, in the Native traditions, the great stories are stalking the storyteller. And I think that happens with video games as well. And it happens with all kinds of creative endeavors. And, you know, right now we're, uh, we're about to see the fifth uh, Indiana Jones film. And I like to use that analogy at, in an Indiana Jones film. He's looking for a treasure. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the treasure is not there. He doesn't get a map at the beginning that says exactly where it is. Instead, he gets one clue. And then he has to follow that clue. And where does that clue lead? It leads to the next clue. And then that leads to the next clue. And eventually it leads to whatever the treasure happens to be. And life is like that. Life is like a treasure hunt. And I talked a little bit about this idea of these clues can come in our dreams. They can come in our hunches. They can come in feelings of deja vu, etc. <clears throat> so... I love yeah, what you're yeah. saying because when you do are immersed in dream work, um, you start, you know, with interpreting a dream, looking at a dream, you're looking for the deeper meaning, the brainstorming connections, associations. And what tends to naturally happen is that you start actually applying that to your life as well. Like if this was a dream, what would it mean? And that's a wonderful, exciting way to live, isn't it? Very creatively exciting way to live. Um, so if you're listening and you haven't tried video gaming yet and you think I'm too old, Skyrim granny, everyone on YouTube, <laughs> you know, any age you can do it and it's, it, it will fire you up. It might just awaken that psychic connection that you need. Uh, give it a go just as long as it's in moderation. Sorry, Riz, I was interrupting you as I tend to do. Shut up, Teresa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. No, I was just agreeing with you that that we start to think of, of life as a kind of dream or as a kind of motion picture. And that helps us a little bit. And that ties, you know, really to the ancient idea of karma uh, that's come down to us through the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. Uh, and, you know, we often think of karma in the West as, okay, you did something bad to someone and now they're going to do it back to you, right? <laughs> what goes around comes around. Uh, but, you know, karma has a much more subtle meaning. The word itself is about action, but really, uh, you know, it's not just about action. It's also about intentions and feelings and thoughts. And it, it's very much that even our desires create these little ripples. And then within like the Tibetan traditions, they have this idea of karmic traces that get created in the dream state. Uh, and so some karma creates, you know, situations for us in our dreams and it's a way to resolve that karma. And I, and I like to think of karma as like the great questing engine of life because it's like all these things that we might do based upon all the previous achievements, you know, positive or negative <laughs> that we may have had in the past. But even those desires uh, that we express uh, or that we have internally make an impression. They're called, in the ancient traditions, they start off as what's called vrittis or whirlpools. And they're like whirlpools of desire or of thoughts. And we often translate these things as thoughts, but really they're more than just thoughts. They include our feelings as well. And in fact, if you look at the original definition of yoga today in the West, we think of yoga as the, uh, you know, the asanas or the, the physical postures, but that, that, that's only one of the eight limbs of yoga, according to the sage Patanjali, who wrote the yoga sutras. And he defined yoga in an interesting way which kind of relates to our discussion of, of karma and, and dreams and life as a dream. And, and he said, you know, yoga, chitta vrittis, naroda. And what that means is yoga, chitta means mind stuff. Vrittis are these little whirlpools that I talked about. And naroda means to stop or to still. And so basically yoga is the stilling 
of these vrittis, which I, uh, of mind stuff. Now, I, I kind of reinterpreted that a little bit for, for modern readers in, in Wisdom of a Yogi. And, you know, yoga is the stilling of whirlpools of thoughts and feelings in the river of consciousness. So really anything that causes you to be more still from all of these crazy storm of these uh, these little whirlpools, uh, that is yoga. It's kind of like a snow globe. You know, if you have a snow globe and you shake the snow globe, you can't see what's inside of it, right? But if you let all of the snow settle down, suddenly you can see clearly. Uh, and, and that is very much any practice, whether it's a little meditation, it's a walk by, you know, by the ocean, uh, it's Tai Chi, it's actual physical postures, uh, some breathing exercises, any of those can be defined as a type of yoga. Uh, and it's those little things that then, if, if we don't still them, we keep creating them, what happens is they harden into what are called samskaras or imperfections, which eventually become part of our karma, which becomes part of our questing engine. And so then they appear you know, later on uh, somewhere, uh, according to the Indian traditions. And so it all... So in a sense, you know, like a video game, like a dream, uh, all video games have like a, a game engine. They have a physics engine. They have a game engine. And I like to think of karma as the game engine of life. And it creates these situations that you might say that, okay, I'm going to go on a quest with this person. Uh, and that might be one of the ones you plan. And then when you encounter each other, suddenly you recognize that person. You think, wait, have I seen them in a dream? Why are they so familiar? And you end up having some type of relationship you know, there's often an interesting connection there, uh, which which is based on on the, these kind of invisible sets of quests that we have to go on in this life. Well, that's this is so illuminating. Thank you, Riz, and I, I love the the energetic way you spoke about yoga, because obviously on White Shores, I've had I've had many yoga experts, all wonderful in their own way, but they tend to be very calm when they speak and. <laughs> And I love the fact that you're talking about yoga in this sort of like energetic way, because <laughs> that speaks to me actually a bit more that it's not terribly like, mm, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's a good point. You know, it's like fantastic. I love it because it makes you sit up and think, well, we, actually, he's talking about yoga here. And it's almost like you're running a marathon when you're talking about it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. No, please don't ever change. That's wonderful. Um, but can we talk about now, because obviously um, your book, um, I want to dig deeper into that and the terms there. Yogi. First of all, could you just tell me what is a modern yogi? Is there a place for a yogi in today's world? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I define a yogi very broadly. Right. Uh, and, you know, yogi is not doesn't have to be someone who goes to the yoga studio with the yoga mat and, you know, does downward facing dog, uh, does physical postures. A, a yogi to me is anyone who practices a type of yoga. And, you know, when when Yogananda, whose name literally whose uh, Swami name literally means the bliss of yoga, uh, you know, came to the U.S., he came from India to America just after World War One. And at that point in time, you know, the world was modernizing very quickly. Uh, and he, he, he had to take the first boat, uh, you know, out of India after World War I to, to come to the West. And at that time, you know, yoga was relatively unknown uh, in the West. And so, you know, there are there lots of stereotypes, of course, that existed. And there were some yogis, swamis who had come over uh, to the West before 
uh, particularly to America, but they hadn't really stayed there like Yogananda did. And and so, you know, in in his book, Autobiography of Yogi, which he wrote in 1946, which went on to sell millions of copies, you know, he rarely talks about um, the actual physical postures. Uh, and uh, what he taught was a kind of meditation, uh, as well as one that involved energy in the body as well. And and so, you know, for me, a, a, a yogi, and, and he spent a lot of time trying to bridge the gap between the ancient you know, yogic te- teachings and some of the Christian teachings of the Bible. Uh, and, you know, he, he called yoga the science of religion. Right? And so in a sense, you know, I like to think of a modern yogi as, as anyone who is practicing a technique, you know, that allows them to sort of become calm and access their intuition uh, and eventually to access the divine. So that could be through prayer. That could be, you know, I grew up as a Muslim, which is another, you know, odd reason when I was asked to write this book, I said, well, you know, I'm not even a Hindu. Uh, wow. and I'm not exactly Swami Rizwan, uh, even though I've studied a lot of these, you know, different consciousness techniques. Uh, but sometimes the universe gives you a task and that is your task uh, to complete. You know, I, I, I understand you're a fan of uh, Tolkien and, uh, and, and Lord of the Rings, and you know, uh, in fact, I'm going to be going to uh, the Oxford Fantasy Writers uh, Workshop next oh, week. As a I should fact. be there. I should be. <laughs> it's called like walking, walking and writing the Shires, and I could only go for a few days, but I'll be going there. But you know, there's a there's a famous line in, in Lord of the Rings uh, where uh, the the elf Queen Galadriel, you know, tells. Frodo, this task was appointed to you, and if you do not find a way, nobody else will. And sometimes yes. it's like that in life, right? We get a task. Just like when Yogananda was asked to come to America, he was a young Swami, and he had rarely given public lectures, and always in his native language, Bengali. So he had never even given a talk in English. <laughs> and yet, yeah. he had this vision uh, of these faces that he took to be Americans, because he had never met an American. Uh, and he took that as a clue that he was meant to go to the West to teach yoga. And then after he had this vision, he got an actual invitation from someone to go speak at the Congress of World Religions in Boston in 1920. And, you know, he had lots of obstacles in his way. He didn't have any money, didn't have a visa. There were no berths available on that first ship (laughs) that was going out of India. Uh, You know, but eventually the obstacles melted away and he followed the clues uh, to find the treasure, which was his destiny, which was eventually to, to write this book and inspire you know, millions of people to explore whatever path uh, of, of, you know, whatever path to, to God or the divine that they might want to pursue. And, and that's what happened uh, to me as well. I think I've, I've been rambling a bit here as well. I, don't no, no, I mean, you are the perfect person to make, to bring Yogananda's message, to make it relevant. You really are. It's, it's, it's perfect. When you were writing the book and, and sort of losing yourself in that Yogananda's writings and did you have visions of him well you know one of the the, the chapters one of there's like 14 lessons in the book and one of them is to go out of your way for little or big pilgrimages and this is something i found that yogananda did a lot he would always stop wherever he was traveling to go visit a sacred site or a place where a particular saint lived or you know any particular site and i think that's that's important because there is an energy and inspiration we get and so as i was writing this book i mean originally i was it was a start-stop thing, and I was writing about some of the miracles he talks about 
you know, you've got yogis levitating, swamis appearing in multiple places. <laughs> you've got guys controlling jinns or genies. And, and, and I was trying to find a way in to some of these lessons and I needed some inspiration. And I, so I decided I'd like to go to where he wrote the book, which was in Encinitas, which is right outside of San Diego. So there's a hermitage he set up there overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful area. And he spent the last decade of his life there pretty much writing this book. Uh, and the problem was it was closed off to the public because this was during COVID. Uh, and so I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just go, you know, to, to Encinitas to what's called Swami's beach. If it's closed, well, it turns out they were able to arrange a private tour for me to go into uh, his, oh. his study, his office where he wrote the book. So it was myself and a couple of monks who lived, uh, monastics who lived at the hermitage. And so I was able to go and spend as much time as I want. And while I was there, of course, I did what Yogananda does. I, I meditated in the room, which just meant I, I just quieted my mind and paid attention to my breathing. And I heard the waves of the Pacific Ocean. And suddenly I saw a vision, a very strong vision of him in his robe, standing there looking at me and in his hands, from his desk, he picked up a giant stack of papers, which, you know, is, of course, how they used to write books, right? Back in those days, back in Tolkien's days, there was no computers. There were no computers, so you literally had the pages. And he, he, he like, showed me the pages, and he opened the, the, the French doors that lead out to the Pacific Ocean in my vision. And then, to my horror, he took the pages and he flung them off into over the cliffs onto the Pacific Ocean. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to be lost. What are you doing? Uh, and then what happened was each of the pages turned into like a white bird and they flew away to different places on the earth. And then he smiled at me like, are you getting the message? And, you know, it was a, a message tailored specifically to me because I was a writer and I was there to get inspiration for writing my book. But, you know, it was his message about how these pages are what delivered his message you know, around the world in ways, more ways than he ever could when he was alive. Uh, and also it's okay to, 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 you know, treat these things loosely. You don't have to hold on to them so strongly, treat it more like a, uh, you know, like, like a play, uh, which was a great message as well. So I ended up getting like multiple messages from him during. And so that was one of the primary visions I had while, while writing this book. And it meant a lot to me. And I recounted in that message, you know, go out of your way for little or big pilgrimages. Well, it's astonishing. It really is. And you truly have reinterpreted them for the modern age to speak to the modern generation of people on, you know, with mobile phones, social media, YouTube, etc. And you've done it in 14 lessons. Why 14? Uh, interesting. Well, there was no particular reason except that it was 13. <laughs> it was going to be 13 <laughs> or, fif or 15. And 13 is an unlucky number and 15 was too it's long. It's not, though. I, I feel so sorry for 13. It's not unlucky. Actually, you know, look at the research behind it. It's not. It's not an unlucky. I don't know. It's, it's just it's perceived. perceived that way, maybe we should say, right? <laughs> but thank you, because it's usually 10 or 7. I was just interesting if there was some reason why, why 14. But no, no, it's just that's it, how it, it just felt like the right number for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of those lessons, what does your intuition say? Um, you, you know, just to sort of briefly describe it, listeners of White Shores, of those lessons, which one do you think would speak? All of them will speak to listeners of White Shores. But from my description of my listeners that I gave you, which one do you yeah. think would be speak to them loud and clear? Uh, well, you know. There's uh, one called uh, The Unexpected Lessons of the Tiger Swami, which... Unexpected uh, Journey. Lessons of the Tiger Swami. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, and then it's a journey. I'm going to Tolkien again. Sorry, you have to get me, divert me back, divert me back. <laughs> well, if we want to do a fantasy one, there's the one, a karmic lesson embedded in a story about a djinn uh, or a okay. genie. Uh, and yeah. uh, in that lesson, in, in that story, there's a, a Muslim fakir or holy man who, uh, who named Afzal Khan, who learns a technique from a yoga master about that he gets him to control a, a jinn or a genie. And he ends up getting that genie to take objects of value and stealing them from people uh, when he's not there. So they could never pin it on him. So he would like touch some tickets at the train station or a gold watch. And then later he would tell Hazroth, this entity, Hazroth, go get that. And then Hazroth would make it disappear and appear, you know, in his possession. <laughs> and it turns out, you know, Yogananda's guru, Sri Yukteswar, actually saw these miracles, not just individual objects, but like dozens of golden plates just appearing at the ceiling for a giant feast. Uh, and this guy was controlling this, this genie and, and, and he was, you know, getting all these things. And then it turns out later the, the same yoga master who taught him the technique saw that he was using it for personal gain. And he had told him at the beginning that he has a tendency from a previous life to be greedy or avaricious and that he should not use, you know, Hazrat, the control of this genie for personal gain. And so he took away that ability for him to control this this genie. Now, this sounds like something out of the Arabian Nights or something out of a fantasy novel, you know, in terms of the story. But you know, he also wrote a public apology uh, in the Bengali, in the Bengali newspaper, and he was called the Terror of Bengal because people knew about him back then. That he would show up, and they could never pin it on him because he never actually stole the things. Uh, and but you know, this is an interesting story, and it turns out there are other stories like this within different traditions, particularly in South India, where objects from like London, you know, just appear, uh, and they mm. do it through through the control of an object like 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 this gin or this genie, uh, and, and and it turns out, you know, it's an interesting lesson. There, there's a lesson there about not using yoga or these personal or these cities, as they're called, for for personal gain. But there's also an interesting lesson about karma, which is that for somebody who was going to play a game or, or live a life where they were trying to resolve these tendencies that they had to be greedy, what better test could there be for that person than yeah. to have a genie who can give them anything they want, right? It's, it's almost <laughs> like the universe or the storyteller created this, this, the right quest for the right player of the game at the time. Uh, and uh, so again, you know, I thought maybe this was just a, uh, uh, this was a metaphor uh, but then as I looked into it, it, it you know, Yogananda was very careful to talk about the provenance of this guy. And then I found out there was a similar story of a British guy who, who went to Lahore, which is near where I'm from in, in modern day Pakistan. And he went to Lahore and he said, you know, there's one thing I don't understand, which is if, the, if Solomon had the Queen of Sheba, you know, come to him and when she got there, her throne was already there. How is that possible? Because it was a giant throne and heavy. And supposedly Solomon controlled a jinn to bring or a genie to bring it there, uh, and 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 so this British guy was was saying, you know, how is this possible? And so they said, go go to this place called the Data Darbar's tomb. So it's a tomb of a Sufi saint in Lahore. It's very famous. It's like a really well known place in Lahore. And he went there and he looked around for somebody to ask, and he saw this old bearded guy, and he asked him, you know, how is this possible? Explain it to me. And then the old guy said, okay, I'll explain it to you. But first sit down. What would you like to drink? Some, some tea? He goes, yes, I'd like some tea. So the guy put out his hand and this cup appears in his hand, cup and saucer. And he gives it 
to the guy, the guy looks at it and he almost faints because it's his cup and saucer from his home back in London. <laughs> and then he, he's like, how is this possible? He turns to the bearded guy and the bearded guy isn't there. And then it turns out this British guy, I forget his actual given name, he ended up just converting and living in Lahore uh, for the rest of his life. And he would like take care of the tomb. And he's buried there. He's one of only three people buried there. So it's a really interesting story. <laughs> and there are many of these interesting stories that come up, uh, you know, that, that relate to kind of these stories of old India that we think are maybe fanciful or fantastical. But perhaps there's more truth to them uh, in, in, if life is a video game, then these things could happen possibly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a deeply curious, exciting, mind-opening read, everyone. And got so many endorsements and, uh, and, and reviews from, from really esteemed sources as well. It, uh, you know, do check it out. Um, what's the best place for, for my listeners to, to find out about you, Riz? Um, order this book. Sure. So my website is called zenentrepreneur.com, Z-E-N entrepreneur.com. Uh, which was based on the title of my first book, Zen Entrepreneurship. They can also follow me uh, on Twitter. I'm at Riz Stanford, like Stanford University, R-I-Z Stanford. Um, and yeah, and they can get my books on Amazon and you know most bookstores, can, uh, they may have some or they can certainly order them as well. Oh, well, do do, because I mean, we've all woken up. I mean, I was quite sleepy before this interview. It's it's my afternoon, <laughs> and you have really raised the vibration. And I love this because some of my episodes, you know, probably would be a cure for insomnia. People would argue. So thank you so much. So thank you so much for this. You've you've raised the vibration. And before you go, may I ask you um, again, just to use your intuition? Um, do you have a copy of your book with you? Uh, yep, I do. Do would you mind just sort of like just reading a paragraph? that you feel we need to hear, it doesn't matter where or what, just something for listeners of White Shores to mull over and get a sense of you and your, and the book. Just, 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 uh, just a paragraph. Sure, just any paragraph, okay. Like, as long as you up. like, as short as you like. Just, just, just listen to opened, a bit of it. Opened up to a random page, which ended up being the lesson that I was going to talk about before I talked about the lesson of the genie. <laughs> Uh, so uh, here's a paragraph. Admittedly, fighting outer tigers is not the goal in the long run and can get us into trouble if we do it for too long. But most of us are trying to earn a living and are therefore engaged in the small battles of daily life, our outer tigers. The thought of abandoning our worldly ambitions and devoting ourselves full time to fighting our inner tigers, dispelling the darkness of ignorance that all of us are caught in, can seem like a long and winding road. In fact, it can seem so far off that we assume we may never get there. The Tiger Swami had no interest in getting on the spiritual path for many years, years that he spent achieving his childhood ambition to earn fame by fighting tigers. You might say, just as we did about Yogananda, who knew from an early age that being a wandering Swami was part of his life path, that tigers were a part of the Tiger Swami's path in life. They were an on-ramp to his spiritual path. And had he never spent those years fighting those tigers, his story would probably be unknown today and he may never have gotten on the spiritual path to become a Swami at all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Riz, from my heart and soul for that. That's really food for thought. Thank you. And yeah. I can't let you go without the inevitable question that I torture 
selected guests of White Shores, because <laughs> sometimes it's just I don't think I can. But if you could be a character in Lord of the Rings or an object, who or what would it be and why? Or an object? I've never thought of that. <laughs> you know, my, my favorite character was, was always Bilbo Baggins <laughs> when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, the fact that he didn't want to go on this adventure, but he ended up going on it anyway. And, so, and it had a ripple effect and changed the course of history there. So I guess I would be Bilbo Baggins if I could be any character, uh, either Bilbo or Gandalf, because I've always fancied myself wanting to be a wizard. Well, don't don't <laughs> let's say Gandalf, because I had so many Gandalfs. This was my first okay. Bilbo. Okay, well, that's right? so Bilbo, Please right? don't spoil the moment. We have a Bilbo, and yes, he is an unsung hero. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and last Bilbo it is. <laughs> Because well, so, it helps people when they're, you know, because this is not a video podcast, it's audio. So if you know Lord of the Rings, you can think of Bilbo when you you, you go to Riz's website or, or read his book. Um, and if, if, if you're not a fan of Lord of the Rings, as, as a lot of increasing number of my listeners are not fans of Lord of the Rings, and I get messages saying, stop talking about it. If you could be an animal or an insect or a reptile or a fish or anything, what would it be and why? Uh an animal. I would want to be a bird. Um, and I can't okay. say exactly what type of bird, but the reason is because of the feeling that I get, you know, when I am able to uh, become lucid in a dream. And my lucidity test when, when I'm in a dream to tell if I'm in a dream is to fly. And so, you know, there's that indescribable feeling of just being able to soar over the landscape and look down and i can't always do that in my dreams but when i can that's when i recognize that i'm in a dream and so i would i would be a bird for that feeling yeah deeply spiritual isn't it rising above seeing the bigger picture so we've got bilbo and a bird final question but you can take it um if you could be a musical instrument what would it be and why musical instrument i've never thought of that either that's an interesting question perhaps i'd have to be a trumpet because uh, okay. as you said i can maybe help wake some people up <laughs> well actually the angels they don't actually play harps isn't it they actually play trumpets don't they um that's right later in medieval times. so this is perfect we've got trumpets we've got bilbo badmins and we've got a bird great this is this is food for thought for people <laughs> when they're if they're new to you <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Riz. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. <clears throat> Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you from my heart and soul for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores. Sensitive, kind, compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help this earth heal and evolve. If you have any questions, stories or insights to share, I absolutely love hearing from you and aim to reply to everyone in due course. My website is www.teresachung.com. My contact email is angeltalk710 at aol.com. And you can message me via my Instagram handle, the Teresa Chung, as well as my Facebook and Twitter author pages. Until we meet again on these white shores, keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude. <laughs>